Okay, why don't we pray one more time, ask the Lord's favor and help as we get into His Word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You again for the promise of Your Word that in thinking over the things that You have given us in Your Word, You will grant us understanding in everything. And uh, Father, we ask that You would illuminate our heart and mind today, that You would bring us into greater clarity regarding the future of our, of our church, the future of the, the church, the future of our own lives, and the future of the eschaton, Lord. And as perplexing as eschatology is at times, we know that it is crystal clear what the Word is saying here today, and that is that Jesus Christ will bring the tyranny of the Antichrist to an end. And we have great hope in that, Lord, knowing that evil will not prevail and that at times, though our lives look like we're surrounded and we're living in a world where evil is rampant and a world is out of control, in fact, your sovereignty says the complete opposite, that you are perfectly in control and that we can take absolute comfort in that that we can draw strength from that, that we can face our trials, that we can face our discouragements and our heartaches and our hardships. We can face tribulation because we know that You are the God of heaven and earth, the One who controls all things. And so, Father, we pray, O Sovereign God, remind us, Lord, of this. Remind us that You have ordered our steps and that You have for us a future that is sure and certain and that You have written our names in the Lamb's book of life. We thank You, Lord. We pray for Your help now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we come to another uh, passage here uh, on the doctrine of the Antichrist that we've been studying and how incredibly important all of this doctrine and all of this theology is for the hope of the church would remind you that every time you come to this section of scripture that you come with the understanding that the things that are written here before you are meant to encourage you they are meant to embolden you and to empower you to live in the present age that's an encouraging thing for sure now as we look at this text we understand that the conflict that is before us, that is the conflict that arises out of the revelation of the Antichrist on the one hand and on the other hand on the, the revelation of the Lord, the coming of the Lord to destroy the Antichrist, that conflict is nothing new but is really the, the culmination and the climax of an ancient battle that has been raging ever since Satan fell ever since Satan was in the garden, ever since mankind fell. There has been enmity, to put it in the words of the book of Genesis. God says, I will put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman, which is Christ and His people. And that is what has been unfolding throughout the pages of history and so that every single conflict is a prelude is sort of a a preview of the ultimate conflict to come 
And when it comes, and when Christ comes, and when the Lord returns in the second coming, He will not only usher in the everlasting kingdom, but He will bring the kingdom of the Antichrist and of Satan to an end. He will destroy Him. And when He destroys Him, He will dissolve the present age and the God of this age with Him. This is precisely what Jesus' role as Messiah is all about. This conflict is actually prophesied in the book of Isaiah. If you want to turn there, I can read it to you. But Isaiah 11 is actually probably the text that stands behind 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. In other words, this verse right here, what stands behind this verse, at least seminally, is Isaiah 11, beginning in verse 1, where there we are, uh, in, we are encountering the branch, the, the, the stem of Jesse, who comes in the power of the Spirit to destroy wickedness. And this is what it says. Then a shoot will spring forth, or spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what he sees or what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. So in other words, he's not gonna, his judgment is not a superficial, surface-level judgment, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. Even as Jesus said, blessed are those that mourn. This is where it all comes from. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness, the belt about his waist. And so just as Isaiah prophesied, when uh, the messianic king arises to execute his justice in the world, it will transpire through the authority of his word, the breath of his mouth by which he will slay the wicked. And, of course, along with that is he will slay the evil one, the man of lawlessness and the sons of disobedience who walked in the spirit of the age. He will bring it all to an end so that his faithfulness and his righteousness will be magnified. Now, in this text, to see that victory, that triumph, that conflict, that battle, and the victory of that battle... Uh, I, I want to take this verse in several stages to magnify the victory of Christ. Number one, we need to see the sovereignty of God in the victory. We need to see the slaughter of the Antichrist. And number three, the futility of Satan. And last of all, the glory of the second coming. Or we can say the glory and the power of the second coming because that is what is at work. Now, let's begin with the sovereignty of God. God. Why do I say the sovereignty of God? Well, because you remember that we just came out of the context of the restrainer. The restrainer who is restraining the lawless one. And then here in verse 8, it says that the lawless one will be revealed. Now, that revelation has already been modified in verses 6 through 7 as being bound to some certain timing. And so what is that timing? Because it says in verse 6, now you know what restrains him now, 
and what restrains him now is the power of God through what I argued was Michael the archangel. That's why it says he who restrains, because Michael, going all the way back to Daniel and other places, has always been in combat with Satan. And you see that even in Revelation chapter 12. But here it says he will be uh, restrained so that in his time he will be revealed. So same thing. So there you have verse 6, the revelation of the uh, of the Antichrist. And then here in verse 8, he will be revealed. And so that revelation, that manifestation is underneath the timing that is appointed to him. And so this brings us to this point that the victory of Christ is rooted in the sovereignty of God. God has a pre-appointed time when the Antichrist will be revealed. He is not able to emerge on his own accord. It is not Satan who is in charge of Antichrist's coming, but it is God. And uh, that might throw us into a bit of a philosophical conflict because we immediately engage in the, uh, the, the topic of theodicy and God's overarching control over all things, including evil. And so theodicy just speaks of God's relationship to evil. And so the argument usually goes, how can there be a good God if God is in control and even ordains, um, especially according to Reformed theology, that God ordains whatsoever comes to pass, including the evil that comes to pass in the world? Well, I don't know that I'm going to resolve all of that here for you now, other than to say that God has a good purpose for the evil that he ordains, exhibit A, the coming of the Antichrist. I mean, the revelation and the coming of the Antichrist at the behest of God's sovereign timing shows us that God is sovereign over the evil that he permits to come into the world and that he has a very good reason for why he is bringing that to pass. He's bringing it to pass to bring the age to the conclusion that he has foreordained for it. He's bringing it to pass to purify his church uh, uh, and to confirm people either in righteousness or in wickedness. That really is the truth. I get this question all the time. Students at UNT ask me, why are you here? Uh, why are you doing what you're doing? I've even had questions. I've even had students ask me, are you getting paid to do this? I'm just like, well, I don't know, kind of in a sense, I'm a pastor. Um, the reason I'm here is to preach the gospel. And then the next question that I get is, this is not working. This is not effective. You're not reaching anybody. I said, well, uh, I know that I am, but not me, because the Spirit uh, uses, you know, uh, vessels, uh, uh, you know, uh, clay pots, you know, so that we have the treasure inside. But I know that the gospel is being effective here today. There's no question about it, 100% certainty. But that effectiveness is uh, cast in two different ways. Uh, according to Second uh, uh, Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, we know for a fact that the gospel is either hardening you in your unbelief or it is softening you uh, in your repentance. And so death to death or life to life. And so I'm perfectly fine understanding it in those ways. And that's exactly what's going on here in the revelation of the man of sin. When he comes, it will be for the manifestation of the fact that people will either be confirmed in their wickedness in opposition to God, or it will be so that people will turn to God and repent. 
God is absolutely sovereign over everything, brothers and sisters. It says in Psalm 115, verse 3, God sits in heaven and does whatever He wants. Another question I get all the time is, do you believe in free will? The answer to that question is kind of nuanced, but I can say something like, well, yes, of course. It says it right there. Uh, Psalm 15, verse 3, God, 115, God sits in heaven, does whatever He wants. There you go. There's your free will. <laughs> of course I believe in free will. God is the only one who truly has it. And uh, because God is free and God is sovereign, then I know that He is sovereignly in control of all things, all things, even the devil, even the Antichrist. We consider the devil. Why did the devil fall? Well, I don't know that I can answer all the intricacies of that, but one big answer that I give to that question is that people ask me, why did the devil become the devil? Why did, why did the angel go from being a, 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 a splendorous, glorious angel to the fallen angel, Satan, as the devil as he's come to be known? I say the reason why is because he was not elect. It says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, as Paul refers to elect angels. And so the reason why Satan and his angels fell is because they were not foreordained before the foundation of the world to be ordained to eternal life. They were not elect and chosen by God to minister into his presence forever. Now, that's as far as I go. You want to push me? I'm just going to say, I don't know. But I know this. Satan is not elect. And that's why he fell. If he was elect, then he wouldn't have fallen. God was sovereign over the reprobation of Lucifer and will be sovereign over the final stages of his influence and his life and in in his uh, work in the world, even through the Antichrist, even through the coming and timing of the manifestation of the man of sin. In all of these tribulations, we never, ever can lose sight of that, that God's power, his wisdom, his authority, his sovereignty has ordered the end times precisely the way that will bring him the most glory. And the church can look to that sovereignty just like they did in the book of Acts. They look to the absolute total sovereignty of God to bring them up out of the fire of affliction and persecution. The principle is the same, even though the persecution may intensify. Any Christ's cruel ambitions, even as we sang there, the mighty fortress, uh, saying today by pastoral request, uh, is so apt, isn't it? He seeks our woe. He seeks our harm. He's a cruel adversary. That's who he is. And his cruel ambitions against the church and against God's people are a delegated authority and power. He has nothing unless it is first given to him from heaven, even as John chapter 3 says. Even his short-lived influence, because that's what it's going to be when Antichrist comes, even that is not ultimately at his command. This note of sovereignty is found not only right here in Thessalonians, but also in Revelation. Let me just read one passage to you. Revelation chapter 13, verse 7. This is what it says. Revelation 13, 7. It was also given to him to make war with the saints. That's the beast, the Antichrist. And to overcome them, and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name is not 
has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of, the, of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Wow, this is uh, those places in the book of Revelation in the Bible where the, uh, the author, John, or whoever it is, uh, not Revelation, but who, in any other book as well, but when it says let him hear, let, uh, let him who has an ear, let him hear. Uh, the author, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is saying, pay attention. Don't fall asleep in your devotions while you're reading this. Pay attention. Listen carefully to what I'm about to say. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. In other words, the fact that God has foreordained all of these things and is sovereign, all of these things produces the perseverance of the saints. Of course, because it's only when we have the divine perspective that we can interpret the slaughter of God's people, brothers and sisters. It's only when we see it from the perspective of eternity and the sovereignty of God that all the martyrdom that will be unleashed on planet earth, and I don't know if we're ready for that, by the way. I don't know if we are ready for that in this room. Are you? Maybe jot that down as a question you ask yourself later tonight before God in prayer. Are we ready to see what many of our brothers and sisters all around the world are seeing on a regular basis, are we ready to see brothers and sisters being hauled away to their martyrdom? I don't know. I pray. I pray that God would strengthen our faith so that in that moment our faith would not fail. And what's going to hold you together? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, Joel Osteen? Your best life now? I don't think so. The wealth and health, health prosperity gospel is heresy. And it will not keep you together on that, in that moment and in that time and in that day. The only thing that will keep you together is that this trial that is standing before me, that chopping block has been foreordained before the foundations of the world and God is with me despite that. You think I'm crazy? Well, I know that, but... <laughs> but in Romans chapter 8, isn't that exactly the way the Apostle Paul encourages us? What will separate us from the love of God? Will death? Will death? No. Death cannot separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. You see how indestructible, how indomitable the love of God is in your life. That's what it's saying. It says, this is how much God loves you in Christ Jesus. You are loved by God so much in Christ Jesus that not even death can separate you from that love. Ah. And so we can let goods and kindreds go. This life also. Because we are in His grip. We are in His love. And so to understand the victory of Christ, first we have to begin with the absolute sovereignty of God. Who is the one who has foreordained the revelation and the manifestation of the man of sin himself? Next, The victory of Christ is also seen in the slaughter of the Antichrist. Look at verse 8. Then the lawless one uh, will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth. And so I love that. uh, That is such triumphant language there, isn't it? He will slay him. When Revelation leaves off, they're talking about martyrdom. We have to go forward to this where Christ returns and He slays the man of sin. And so what 
Thessalonians is presenting here is that like in much of the language of the Old Testament, God, uh, the Lord Yahweh, is often depicted as a warrior that puts on his armor and comes to, uh, to fight on behalf of his people. That's what's being depicted in the story of David and Goliath. You know what I mean? And so we tell Eden, we say, Eden, do you want to be on uh, David's team or Goliath's team? And she's like, hmm, I want to be on David's team. So we use that to our advantage. So we say, hey, uh, <laughs> you want to be on David's team? You better eat your vegetables. Because if you're on David's team, you want to be big and strong, right? So eat those veggies on the plate. Don't put them aside, okay? You want to be big and strong, be on David's team? See, this is the way we manipulate. No, just... <laughs> She sees right through us, by the way. She's smarter than that. But that, that, that uh, episode there in Scripture is meant to prepare us for the final conflict between Christ and the true enemy of God's people and the conflict that comes between he and Antichrist. But ultimately, this whole uh, theology of the Antichrist coming to an end is found in Daniel chapter 11, verse 45, where it says of this end-time ruler, this end-time, this little horn that rises up. And as we mentioned in Sunday school, anytime Scripture speaks of a horn, a lot of people check out because they go, I can't understand this. This imagery is too crazy. There's horns and there's a little horn and a big horn. And in your mind, you're thinking like, you know, uh, longhorns from Texas, right, or something like that, right? (laughs) That's not what the Bible is trying to convey. The Bible is speaking of strength. The horn is a symbol of power and strength. And so what he's saying is that some world ruler will arise and power will be granted to him to rule and to govern. And so the king of Babylon and all those, the Pharaoh, those are horns of power. And that's what you find in Revelation. That's what you find here in Daniel 11. But it says, he will come to his end. And no one will help him. Many years ago, oh boy, back in the 40s, E.J. Young, in his commentary on the prophecy of Daniel, fantastic commentary, by the way, he says, the great final enemy of the people of God, the Antichrist, will make his last stand uh, in a territory that is sacred and holy because it refers to Jerusalem and his end will be complete. Apparently, it will be brought about by the glorious return of the Son of God from heaven. So expositors have been making these connections for a really long time. So you have multiple references in Daniel and other places to the destruction of the final world ruler. Daniel chapter 7, verse 11, also, which is uh, borrowing from Isaiah uh, 14, verses 13 and 14 that we looked at there. And some of the instances may have partial fulfillment in lesser antichrist figures so i don't deny that and we talked about that keep your eye on the ball here guys listen carefully because as you read a commentary on daniel you read a commentary on the antichrist what you're going to have is an array of positions and an array of views coming from every angle and every uh, theological persuasion and the names that they're going to be throwing out there is antiochus epiphanes antiochus the fourth nero caesar nero and titus and that these men are the antichrist of daniel Daniel. And uh, to that position, what I say is that, no, this is not the Antichrist of Daniel, but maybe they are prefiguring the Antichrist. Perhaps they do fulfill some of what Daniel and the prophets are seeing, but that only uh, paves the way for the ultimate fulfillment. And the reason we know that is because when this ruler arises, the only thing that will destroy him is the return of Christ. Christ. 
So those rulers have come and gone. Uh, and it may be that Antiochus, he walked into the temple, he slaughtered a pig, spilled its blood in the Holy of Holies, and that was a total desecration of the temple that was foreseen by Daniel many centuries prior. Maybe. But that is not the ultimate, ultimate uh, blasphemer that God is after and that God is revealing to us. Now, ultimately, this destruction of any Christ can only be fulfilled by the parousia. And so, for example, you see that in Revelation chapter 19. Turn there. Revelation 19, beginning in verse uh, 19. So, 19, 19. And uh, so, this is taken then out of the realm of the prophetic symbolism of the Old Testament and made crystal clear by John, who doesn't depart from the Old Testament prophets, uh, the Old Testament prophecies and the Old, Old Testament prophetic idioms. He doesn't depart from that. He uses them, but then he shows us how this is all going to be coming to pass because he says in Revelation 19.19, 19, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army, that is Christ. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed signs in his presence. By the way, that kind of fills in the gap of what is being talked about here in Thessalonians, because in Thessalonians it speaks of those signs and wonders that are coming. Revelation makes very clear, crystal clear, it's that it is the false prophet who will perform these things in the presence of the beast. And uh, we don't have time to get into the specifics of all that, but that's sort of filling in the gap. Uh, But it says here he was seized with the false prophet, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword. Watch us now, connecting us back to Thessalonians. The rest of them were killed uh, with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. And so there, again, we have the mouth, coming back to Thessalonians, the breath of Jesus coming to slay the Antichrist and his final world system. I believe that's what's going on there. You know that this language here in verse 21 of Revelation 19.21, this language here of the sword that came out of his mouth, but more importantly, all the birds were filled with their flesh, that is ultimately going back to Ezekiel 39 and 38 and 39, which is a prophecy of Gog and Magog. Now, the reason why that's important is because of this, is because it connects us in Ezekiel chapter 39, verse 20, to the concept of the mighty men who rule the world. That mighty men reference is found all the way back in Genesis, uh, Genesis uh, chapter 6, uh, referring to the, uh, the, the sons of God who saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and then they, go, they went and took wives for themselves and they were called the mighty men, the men of renown. What gives? What's, Revel- what's Genesis talking about? Because it doesn't really qualify it, it just says it. And then there is one particular mighty man who is zeroed in upon, kind of like we go to the mighty men, so there's all these powerful people on earth, and then it kind of zooms into one mighty man. So do you understand what Scripture is trying to convey and who is that mighty man? That's Genesis chapter 10. That's Nimrod from Shinar, the one who built the Tower of Babel. He is the mighty man that Genesis is trying to get us to understand. These mighty men are who? Well, we know the mighty men of David, but that's not what's being referred to in Genesis or in Ezekiel. Uh, These are enemies of the people of God. These are enemies of God. And they're 
really they are world rulers. And so what do we find right here in Revelation 19? It says that I saw the beast and the kings of the earth. You see, what Genesis, what Ezekiel, what Revelation is trying to tell us is that the beast always works in this way. He tries to capitalize upon those men, those mighty men, who have the capacity to shape world events and the course of human history because what did we learn from Babel if we learned anything? God says that if he doesn't intervene, what does he say? Nothing will be impossible for them. In other words, they will be unstoppable. And, and, and what can stop it? It's the momentum of this, the system, the, the global power of this movement is unstoppable. And unless God were to intervene, nothing would become impossible for it. That's exactly what's going to happen during the reign of the Antichrist. It will seem as if a world system is rising up that has so much a power and potential. It probably promises heaven and earth to people. And if God does not come in with the brightness of his coming, if Messiah does not come in riding on that white horse with the word proceeding like a sword out of his mouth to slay the beast, nothing would be impossible for them. They would be unstoppable, but they will be stopped. They will be stopped. It's sort of insane, isn't it? We should conclude that. The victory of Christ is also highlighted when we think about the futility of Satan. The futility of Satan. Satan is diabolical, and diabolical people are irrational, and they are uh, insane. (laughs) Because if we learn from Isaiah uh, 14 anything... (laughs) Is it the one who said, I will ascend to the, mo- uh, to, you know, I will ascend to the heights of heaven. I will be like the most high God. It's as if, you know, the Lord says in verse 14, are, are you serious? Not only will you not ascend to the throne of God, you will actually descend to the pit. That's where you're going. And so Satan has this futile, diabolical plan that if he's no longer given access to torment the church in heaven because Daniel cast him out of there, or excuse me, Michael, Michael cast him out of there, Revelation chapter 12, then he's going to attack the church on the earth and he's thinking, okay, now this is the way that I'm going to destroy God's people, God's tabernacle, God's temple. I will kill the church on earth. That's what I'm going to do. So he really thinks he's on to something here. But he's not. He will be destroyed by the breath of his mouth. That's what it says. And in fact, in Scripture, all throughout Scripture, the breath, the mouth, the nostrils of Yahweh, this is always meant to highlight the absolute power and omnipotence of God that comes at times with the breath of his mouth. He creates the world, the spirit that comes from him. He creates the world with the breath of his mouth. He judges nations. And if you just look at Revelation, for example, it says in Revelation chapter 2, verse 16, that, uh, <clears throat> that the judgment that will be meted out, for example, to heretics is with that, that which proceeds out of the mouth of Jesus. 
He will also consequently, in the same way, with his breath, he will judge rebellious nations, Revelation 19.15. And Jesus is said in Revelation chapter 1, verse 6, that he has a sword coming out of his mouth. Of course, this is all apocalyptic metaphor to describe the judicial judgment of God upon the wicked, exactly as Isaiah 11.4 uh, 4 said. However, that language now is being leveled against the Antichrist. Also, By virtue of the fact that it is the breath of his mouth, we should also highlight something very basic, and that is the ease with which, uh, which with which with with which Christ will destroy the Antichrist. It won't be a, it won't be a true arm wrestling match. You know what I'm saying? Uh, Omnipotence, ant. (laughs) Not a whole lot of, you know, back and forth. Oh, this battle's getting really good. No, not really. It's just unfolding in the manner in which God said it would unfold. The whole plan of redemption is actually found there in Psalm 110. You want to turn there very quickly with me. I've pointed this out to you before. To speak of the effortless nature of the victory of Christ, we are given a uh, a picture of Christ as that Melchizedekian king-priest of God that will come to destroy his enemies, the very context that we're in now. Look at what it says here, brothers and sisters. Look at verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Stop. The book of Revelation going all the way up to the new heavens and the, and the new earth is, is the fulfillment of this verse. In other words... We will not arrive at the eschaton until all of his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. That's exactly what Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Um, Yeah, that's right. Verses 27 and 28 specifically, as there everything is subject underneath Christ. Even if you don't see it, it says. Even if you don't see the subjugation of everything underneath the feet of Christ, it is subject under his lordship and his and his power and his authority. And then it says, the Lord will stretch forth a strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. And so I think this is definitely seen in the fact that when Christ returns, it says he will come with all of his people. And so sometimes my position on eschatology is mocked. I say, well, if you don't have a tribulation, or excuse me, if you don't have a rapture seven years before the second coming, then how are all his people coming with him? Is it going to be kind of like a quick elevator? Yeah. So, yeah, kind of. Because if you're translated in the twinkling of an eye into your glorified state when Christ returns, it won't take a whole lot of time for you to come back and rule and reign with him and, uh, and, and do battle alongside of him. So yes, it will be instantaneous, uh, but we don't know the exact details of the nature of Christ's return, what that's going to look like. I mean, from all accounts, it seems like it's going to be a global slaughter. It's like when people ask You know, the foolish question that you often get, you know, when people say God is a God of love in the New Testament, but God is a God of, you know, wrath 
in the Old Testament. And you just say like, yeah, right. Just read the book of Revelation. Are you kidding me? It says that when he returns, the bodies will be scattered all over the place so that birds will feast on their flesh. You, you think God's a God of wrath in the Old Testament? Just wait. Stay tuned. Because you're going to see wrath unleashed on a cosmic scale, unparalleled in human history, so that as the book of Hebrews says in chapter 12, everything that can be shaken will be shaken. This very order will be disrupted by the wrath of God. The whole planet will shake. Uh, Did you guys hear a few months ago, they actually said that the planet went through some sort of global seismic event? Did you guys hear? Raise your hand if you... I saw the headline, and I looked into that, and they said that, uh, uh, that, that in fact, people are, are baffled by that. They have no idea what happened. All they know is that seis- seismologists detected that some sort of pulse went through the whole globe. And what does Scripture say? There will be a quake that will dislodge all of the islands. The whole earth will feel it. Now, coming from California, from earthquake country, let me tell you, that, what kind of quake does that got to be like? I don't want to be around when that. I mean, I remember, I still have the memory of being a little boy. I lived through the Whittier earthquake. Keith, you remember that? It shook the house so hard, I remember as an unregenerate little pagan gangster kid saying, please, God, make it stop. I was terrified to my core because the, the shaking was so violent. You've you got to admit, guys, when you're in a heavy earthquake, how many of you have been through that? But you lose faith in everything. You just not, you know what I mean? You ever seen videos of people that go through earth? I saw the video of it. It was like a, it was like a, a funny video, but the, the earthquake came and this guy was just walking around in his living room and he ran underneath a coffee table about this high off the ground. He didn't even fit under there. He was so terrified. He forsook all of his kids, all of his family, and he just thought of himself. Yeah. Where's your courage, right? And the Bible says that the hearts of men will fail on that day. And the Bible says that people look on the waves of the sea, the roaring of the waves, and their hearts will fail. And the Bible says that there will be an earthquake that will dislodge the whole world. Wow, how powerful is the second coming going to be? Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. This is the final point. The victory of Christ is also consequently seen in the glory of His coming. The glory of His coming, which Paul has already talked about. And beginning in verse 6, you know this passage because we spent several weeks here, but it says in Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those that afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, And to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven, so there's the second coming, with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power when he comes. That's the point. When He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed 
for our testimony you uh, for our testimony to you was believed that's the nature of the second coming it will be a time of total retribution against the wicked and total rescue and deliverance for God's people uh, amazing Christ returns for his people when he returns, his people will be waiting for him, longing for him, marveling at him as he comes, which shows you that in the final stages of the last days, there will be saints on the earth so that they apparently were not raptured out of the earth before, before that time. His coming will be a world-ending event. That's how powerful it will be. And, as a matter of fact, the word that Paul uses there in Thessalonians, turn back to Thessalonians really quick, because it says he will slay him with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. When it says he will bring him to an end, katargesai, that same word is used by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 26, to say that death will be brought to an end uh, when Christ returns. And that's exactly what you find, in fact, when the final judgment comes. When the final judgment comes, what happens? Think of it this way. It's kind of like the unraveling of, the, of, of Satan's kingdom, the demise of Satan's kingdom. It's all unraveling. When Christ returns, he knows that's it. It's over. You know how it says in Revelation, he has a short time and he's very angry because of that. But it's like that. It's like, a, it's like the toppling of his kingdom. And he's scratching you know, vociferously to, the, to, you know, to, to what, what's left. And he's trying to hold it all together. But in the end, he's really being sucked down into the lake of fire. And so what happens in Revelation? Well, it says that the beast, the false prophet, and Satan, the devil, will be thrown in the lake of fire. And then it says that on top of that, Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, death and Hades will be thrown into the lake of fire itself. All terminated by the cosmic event known as the second coming, which is a world-ending event. Let's hear it from Jesus' own mouth. Turn to Matthew chapter 24. Because you see, it's not even about us knowing the details of the destruction. We stand in awe. We stand amazed. And we see the panoramic of the destruction that is coming. But more than that, as Paul insists over and over, this is ultimately for our comfort, for our hope, for our joy, for our security, for our assurance. Matthew 24, beginning of verse 29 says, But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky. The powers of the heavens will be shaken, just like Hebrews chapter 12 says. And the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. That's the parousia. That's the lightning from the, from the east to the west. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. Look at that. Coming in the clouds of the sky with, the, with power and great glory. As he comes in the clouds of the sky, it's almost like a vision of Christ coming in the fullness of the power of the Holy Spirit, which is always symbolically represented in the clouds, the glory cloud. It is the ultimate glory cloud, wrapping around and engulfing 
the Son of Man as He comes with great power and glory in flaming fire. And He will send forth His angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together His elect from the four winds. So much for Arminianism. From one end of the sky to the other. There you go. It's a final separation. That's what's going to happen. When, brothers and sisters, the Apostle Paul is giving us the details of Satan's demise, the Antichrist's end, it is not at all meant for us to sort of back off and think that, 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 that the devil is sort of, you know, because he is bound to a certain degree, because his uh, timing and, and, and the Antichrist timing is all under the sovereignty of God, that we should somehow underestimate our adversary. No, quite to the contrary. And this is really where our application comes, is that in keeping with our doctrine of biblical eschatology, you know that it is an already not yet reality. You know that already Satan has been bound and limited to a certain degree. He's being restrained. But you know that not yet is his influence completely eradicated. So much so that Peter right, says that he still is lion-like. As Corinthians says, 2 Corinthians 11, he is still a deceiver. As Paul taught in 2 Corinthians 12, he is still an oppressor of the people of God. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he is still crafty enough, enough, that we, right now, today, in this church, can fall prey to his devises. That's what Paul says. And therefore, we have to understand we have a real adversary. The word Satan, Satan, literally means adversary. Joel Beakey, in his wonderful, excellent devotional commentary on the book of Revelation, sitting right outside over there in the bookstore, could be yours at a minimal cost. You could go home with it today. I spent time reading that last night. I couldn't get out of it. I was like, man, this commentary by Beaky on Revelation is very, very uh, well-written, very devotional, very practical. It's just great. I don't think there's another commentary like it, to be quite honest, on Revelation. You know, Revelation is so hard. Not only does he make it simple, he makes it practical to your everyday walk. And this is what he says. He says the word Satan literally means adversary. Peter tells us that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour whom he will. And sometimes he comes tiptoeing. Sometimes he appears as an angel of light. The devil plays so many games. For example, when you sit down to listen to the evening news, you can easily absorb what is being said. But if you turn from the news and pick up your Bible, suddenly your concentration is gone. You ever feel like that? Likewise, you can surf the internet for hours. But when you try to pray, you begin to get sleepy. (laughs) That is how Satan works. He has countless ways, Beaky says. He has countless ways to getting at us and then he goes on to say so that he lulls us to sleep isn't it ironic that in the very context of eschatology that we're talking about here in thessalonians if you just go back to chapter five what is the exhortation that we're given don't sleep 
I mean, think about it. We, we have to be so brutally honest with our flesh, right? Because what Beaky is getting at here is what I wrote, which I'm not trying to help him out. I'm just, based on what he said, what, what, what all this reminds us of is that the enemy is in the business of taking advantage of the weakness of our flesh. He exploits it. There you are. You're a disciple. You're an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is in the hour of his greatest need. Those three and a half years that he's been with you, this is the moment. This is the moment. The hour of his greatest need. And he asks you one simple thing. Pray with me. And what does it say? He came back and the disciples were sleeping. That's because our flesh is weak and Satan takes full advantage of us, brothers and sisters. And so how are we going to counter all of this? This is how we're going to counter all of this. Are you ready? It's really, really, really profound. Avail yourself to the means of grace with sobriety. Why? Because our adversary, the, 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 um, the sinister agent behind the coming world uh, uh, antichrist system it is he that we are battling right now and the way that he works is by impacting us in our most practical things like Beaky mentioned prayer the lord's supper how many of you in our church i'm speaking to myself here guys and i'm a pastor here how many of us in our church Literally get ready for the Lord's Supper every month. Literally write it down in your calendar. Put an alarm in your phone. I mean, that's what these gadgets are for. So that we can use them advantageously for spiritual things. Sadly, we use them for destroying our spiritual lives too many times. How many of us actually intentionally concentrate on getting ourselves prepared for the Lord's Supper, the holy ordinance of God. Getting ourselves ready. How many of us come to the fellowship every week prepared to hear an exegetical sermon? How many of us are here listening to a sermon, following the thought process of the sermon, jotting down notes and taking uh, notes on the points of the sermon so that we can repeat it to, to, and tell the points to our sermon to our children and to one another? Uh, you know, I've got a whole list right here. How many of us understand that the devil, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7, the devil, lo- or verse 11, excuse me, the, the devil loves to come in, and one of the things he loves to come in, one of the things that's always in his crosshairs, unity, fellowship. If I can destroy the foundations of this, I can weaken heritage grace, right? I don't even got to attack the leaders, I just cause a little division over here on the side. Like Paul, that'll keep you up all night (laughs) if you are a leader. Fellowship, love, unity, evangelism, the means of grace, prayer, reading your word, opening up the scriptures, turning off the media, and opening up the word of God. Where, where, Where is that? Where is that? Don't be... Don't be susceptible 
to these things in the most basic areas of your Christian walk, don't think they're unimportant either. And you know, you testify, you can, you can identify, right? Oh, Lord, Father, in the name of Jesus. Oh, sweetheart, I just got to go to bed. I'm tired. I got to go to work tomorrow. But yet, you've been watching TV for three hours. You seem to be doing just fine doing that. Yeah. That's the way that Satan works right now. That's the spirit of Antichrist. That's the spirit of the age. We are in this atmosphere of demonic oppression, and we need to wake up to it. And it's not, you know, it's not, you know, the devil behind every bush and rock. You know what I mean? The boogeyman, he's out to get, you know. It's not that. It's that there is an air that we're in. There is an atmosphere. There is a spiritual, uh, a spiritual uh, sort of a, a dimension and a spiritual influence that we always battle nonstop. Oh, man, I've got so much to say about that. So much to say about sermon. As a matter of fact, I'm tempted to do a sermon on how do you listen to a sermon and how do you benefit most from a sermon? Because as a pastor, sorry for the selfish moment here, but as a pastor, it's like I yearn for you to get this. It may, I may not always do the best job, but I, 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 I tell you, uh, you know, my motive is sincere. I want you to understand the mind of God. I want you to grasp it, and I want you to be moved by it, and I want it to impact you, and I don't want you to forget it, and I want you to look forward to it next week and prepare. And when you come into the sanctuary to listen to the sermon, the kids already went to the bathroom. You went to the bathroom. You already got water. So that we don't have to be going like this throughout the whole sermon, the whole service. I know it's hard. I mean, my wife had to leave right now, so... <laughs> so if you got one like Eden, I, I, I get it. But you know what I mean. Distractions during sermon. That's how the devil works. You missed that whole point, Pastor. You know how hard the pastor worked just to get that one point together? You know how many times he had to go back, erase, do it over again? I can't figure it out. Kind of like this all night long. And you walked out. God have mercy on you. <laughs> like I said, it comes from a true motive, I believe, uh, just to see the Word of God have its effect upon your heart and upon the heart of our church. So let's pray. Father, Father, help us not to always think that everything is on the lofty end of things when really everything in our lives is on the practical side, the experiential side of our lives, of our walk with you. And so help us, Lord, to be sober such that we are prepared and that we prepare our minds for action and that we take the necessary, the necessary steps. Number one, to be here. Number two, to, to, to really be here, to be engaged. And by being engaged, to be ready to be changed. And so, Lord, I pray that you would protect your people, myself included, from Satan's devices. We are not ignorant of his schemes. He seeks to work us well. But we thank you that the right man is on our side and that he has already granted us the victory and that the final defeat of Satan, the Antichrist, the world system, that final defeat is just really the last ditch effort in a futile 
dream that will never come to pass because Christ is king and his kingdom will have no end. So thank you for these promises in Jesus' name. Amen.